Hey, it's Sarah, and you know about First Take, but how about First Take, Her Take, a brand new podcast hosted by Charlie Arnold, Kimberly Martin, and Chaneo Gumake. They discuss and debate the biggest sports stories and delve into topics about their lives and culture. Subscribe, rate, and review First Take, Her Take, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. My name is Bill Plaschke. My dilemma is, when do I take down my Christmas decorations? The tree is gone, but the mantle's still up. The piano's still up. The back coffee table is still up. I don't want to take them down. I want the lights. I want the flashing. I want the stockings. I want it all up for the whole year. What do I do? Okay, so we finally took our Christmas tree out last night, and uh, it involved a, a small door, a saw, pine needles everywhere, a lot of arguing, scratching of walls, scratching of doorways, a new paint job required, and it involved the the unthinkable in this household, which was someone actually uttered the phrase, artificial Christmas trees are starting to make a lot more sense right now. Uh, it, was, it was an ugly scene, um, but I'm, I'm just grateful that we have about 11 months to regain the Christmas spirit, to completely forget about everything that went down last night and just, you know, get wrapped up in enough of uh, the tradition and, and the fresh smell of pine that will erase the memory of the near divorce that occurred trying to get the tree out. Uh, very girthy tree, very small door. It was much easier when it was all tied up and we brought it in. I guess my point is that it is, uh, you know, late January and my tree is gone, but a lot of my decorations are still up. I still have to box them up and put them away. And I think the usual things that push you along, like people coming over to the house, <laughs> uh, don't exist. So I, I got no one but myself to answer to. So you know what, Bill, take your sweet ass time. And listen, maybe the outdoor stuff, you know, take the outdoor stuff, take the stuff that's visible from the street, wreaths, anything that's a fire hazard, get rid of those. Everything else, if it brings you joy, that little holiday sparkle makes you happy. We're dealing with a lot of stuff. So leave it up as long as you need to. Wait for the spirit to move you. Wait till you feel ambitious and like cleaning. Uh, but this year, more than any other, I am not going to be a stickler about when your Christmas lights have to go down. Whatever you want, Bill, is the answer. That's what she said. I'm super excited to get to this interview with Bill Plaschke, but I just wanted to quick check in with everybody and uh, say that I hope you guys are all hanging in there. This was a rough week or so for me. Man, I think it's a combination of things. I don't have anything to look forward to like the holidays, so it's just really cold in Chicago. Can't leave the house to do stuff. Uh, anytime I want to see friends, we have to set up a, a massive you know, fire pit situation in the backyard and, and wear 18 layers just to hang out for a couple hours. And, you know, everything surrounding the Capitol and the inauguration, we're just in a, in a pretty dark place. And I think some of the questions that we're asking ourselves are really big picture, scary things that hopefully result in meaningful change, but in the meantime, can probably be really uncomfortable. You know, one of the things that I, I said after the Capitol stuff was just that, you know, one of our biggest problems is that we've all bought into the idea of what America was supposed to be. And... We've sort of been taught a history that erased a lot of the truth. We were taught that, you know, everything that the people who founded our country fought for was bravery. And, and instead, it's it's theft, really. And 
the ideals that our country was built on have never actually been a reality. They've just been a goal. And so we have to first say that before we can change. And so we need to use this as a pivot point to make imaginative and big and bold changes, a complete overhaul of a variety of things that we've just gotten used to that we have no idea at this point um, are rooted in racism and xenophobia and misogyny, and that there are little terror cells of all those things built into some of the institutions that we consider a part of our country to to protect us and to, and to keep democracy. And in fact, they're chipping away at it. So I don't want to be dark, uh, but I do feel like, you know, with each generation, you get to a certain age where suddenly you realize that what we were taught and what we grew up with isn't all true. And then you think, okay, well, well this is the time that, that the progress is going to hang on and, and make a difference over the course of a lifetime. And then, you know, you find yourself protesting and marching decades later for the same exact things because the next young generation comes up, buys into the lies, takes years and years to figure out that they weren't the truth and then rinse and repeat. So I'm just hoping that all of this awfulness uh, shines enough of a light on things to actually exact change instead of just being a dark moment from which we slowly have to climb out of a hole. So I hope you guys are, are doing well. I don't know that what I just said will make you feel any better, but again, it's a tiny sliver of silver lining on everything that's going on. And if you're struggling right now, like I am, and if, if things have been kind of tough, I would recommend trying to find something to put out ahead of you to look forward to, whether that's a phone call with someone or a Zoom with some friends. I'm throwing a salt and pepper lifetime movie watch party. You know, it's the little things that matter. Whatever it is, find something to put out there to look forward to just to break up the monotony of, you know, if you're in a cold weather spot, winter and staying home and all that stuff. Or just listen to the archives of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I've heard it's a real pick me up and educational and informative and entertaining all at once. You got some free time. Great way to spend it. Speaking of this week, this week's guest is uh, my around the horn buddy, Bill Plaschke. He's a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, has been for years. He's also a panelist, like I said, on Around the Horn, a seven-time AP National Sports Columnist of the Year. He has a new book coming out in the fall, Paradise Found. It's about the 2019 Paradise High School football team and how they came together after that devastating fire in 2018. And if you don't watch Around the Horn much, we have this sort of fun brother-sister vibe, LA-Chicago rivalry. And it usually goes a little something like uh, Bill makes too many declarative statements. Like, for instance, it's over about the Cubs 2016 season when they fell behind to the Dodgers, but then in fact stormed back to defeat them and then go on to win the World Series. So he he does that a lot. And then I usually get all chesty about my Chicago teams and occasionally repeat lines from Animal House to summon up courage in the face of a deficit. And then my uh, Twitter mentions fill up with young people and movie noobs telling me that the Germans did not in fact bomb Pearl Harbor. <laughs> uh, it's fun. We have fun. Uh, especially when I'm right, of course, which is most of the time. But it was fun to catch up with them outside of the show and learn about uh, his background. I never knew about his, his stuttering problems or his family history. Um, I loved hearing why he likes to focus on the storytelling that he does and his reaction as someone who's been in it and in the middle of it to the changing world of newspapers. Also, his battle with COVID, his story on what he went through, the fear and the dread of not knowing what might come next and knowing that no one can really help if things go wrong, really was a wake-up call for a lot of people about the severity of COVID, even when you survive. I think you're going to enjoy this. That's what she said. Excited to have my Around the Horn 
rival, although a rivalry usually is not reduced to someone saying it's over and then the other person's team winning the World Series. But we'll get to that later. Uh, my sometime around the horn rival, uh, longtime columnist for the LA Times, as you just heard in his bio, extremely successful out there in Los Angeles. But I want to go back way before that, Bill, and start in Louisville. Uh, which I hope I said right. I know there's a lot of uh, consternation. You said it perfectly, Sarah. Excellent. Perfectly, Lua. Have, it was, it was named, a, named after named after King Lua. King Lua, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, what what was your childhood like? What did your parents do for a living? Did you have siblings? Uh, tell us about Baby Bill. Where I grew up in a and I lived in the same house in Louisville, Kentucky, for 18 years. The same bedroom for 18 years. My dad worked at a printing plant. My mom worked at a at a uh, at the Ford factory, I grew up with, uh, I'm the, 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 the second of four children. We didn't have much, but you know, the kind of thing we had each other. And it was, uh, I grew up and I grew up, um, what got me into sports writing and what got me into writing in general is I couldn't talk growing up. I stuttered terribly, stuttered. And the only way I could really, um, express myself was through writing. So I knew I had to, had to do something with writing because when I, cause I, I went and saw all these therapists and the nuns and it was like the nuns were Catholic. So our nuns, the nuns at the, at the parish were our doctors, our nurses, our therapists, our everything. You just, you just go see the, <laughs> you just go see the nuns. Were they well-trained in dealing with stuttering though? Did they have no, any, course, any no, legitimate course, no, tools to no, help you? No, of course not. No. <laughs> None, this none. is at St. Albert the Great, your Saint elementary Al- St. Albert the Great, that's right. That's right, the yeah. Vikings. So, yeah, so I went to St. Albert the Great. So I went and see them, saw the nuns. I got wrapped on the knuckles a bunch and told to talk slower. Slow down, Billy, slow down. Everybody, by the way, everybody mm-hmm. back home calls me Billy. It's a, <laughs> it's a Southern thing. My mom's still, my mom's 89, still lives in Louisville, calls me Billy. Um, anyway, so I stuttered a lot, and it was seemed seemingly unfixable. So I would turn to writing and I would write. And I realized that sports was one of the things that was a universal thing. People, everyone connected to sports somehow. I remember being at a barbecue. This is when I first realized it. And I ran home in the middle of the barbecue with a bunch of family, friends and stuff. And it went to a bunch of neighbors and ran home to check on the the score of the Louisville, Kentucky game. And came back and told everybody, stuttered it out. And everybody was like surrounded me, want to know what happened in the game. And I realized <laughs> that gives you power. That gives you currency. So I went from St. Albert the Great to Ballard High School. So I went from a tiny little uh, private Catholic grade school to a big public high school. I was overwhelmed and I stuttered. So I did what anybody would do. I, I started to write for the school paper. and. Mm. I realized then uh, I wrote my first story from the school paper. I didn't know anybody. I couldn't talk to anybody. I didn't. I was overwhelmed. I was out of my league. I was not a cool kid. I was no, a complete unknown kid. I was the only kid I knew was the last kid on the bench on the on the freshman basketball team. And you go to the freshman games, and everybody would chant his name. His name was Earl Carter, and everybody would chant his name at the end of the game, like they always do for the worst kid on the team. We won Earl. We won Earl. We won Earl. Right. The human, the human victory cigar. Yes, exactly. If he's in, if he's in, you got a hell of a lead. <laughs> yes, exactly. So everybody would chant his name. So I wrote a column about this. I wrote a column. I wrote a story about it. 
And the next, it appeared in the Daily Bruin a couple weeks later, a week later. And then the next day, people in the hallway come up to me and patted me on the back and said, good story. You made me laugh. You made me cry. You made me think. And I'm like, wow, I can do that with my words. So that's kind of how I started writing. I know, I know, yeah. I know, I know, I know Did you I play that, sports? You ask. I, I ran cross country, but I would run, I would, during training, we would run to, down to the, to the strip mall and back and I'd stop at the strip mall and get an ice cream cone or something. So I would, <laughs> I would, I was not very good in cross country, but no, but I, I was in, I was in the marching, I was a band geek. It's, it makes me so mad today. It's my impression anyway, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm right that people in marching bands are cool. That you know, college marching bands are really have their own little cool little fraternity, sorority groups and marching. But back then, I was just a band geek, and we weren't. What we what were instrument? Trumpet. Okay, nice. And I yeah, well, everybody's that. a band geek in school, and then later you realize that being a musician is about the coolest thing you can do. Yeah, it's unbelievable. You just have to get through. You just have to get through the learning of an instrument, and oftentimes, you know, what you're playing might not be yeah. the one that gives you that cool factor later. But so um, I, I, yeah, so I played trumpet. So that was my. I was all state in clarinet, so I. Were you I, really? I, uh, yes, I. I was also a band geek, so. We couldn't afford the reeds. Those reeds are expensive, aren't they? Yeah, in general, the, the yeah the the performing and playing and the lessons and everything is is quite expensive. And unfortunately, I don't really use my clarinet. It's not like I'm going to pull out a clarinet and like regale a party full of people. I, I sometimes tell my parents I wish they'd had me stick with the piano, and I oh. really wish they'd had me learn the guitar because the guitar back then when I had the patience to learn hot cross buns and play it a hundred times in five minutes over and over again, um, you know, I would have stuck with that. And, and I used all my patience up on the clarinet and now it's really hard to learn something later. In uh, did, how many of us wish we'd learn the piano? I've got a piano in my house and my, my son's yeah. a brilliant pianist and I can't, and I, I've often said, I got to take lessons. I got to take lessons. I, I can only play treble clef because I could still read music easily and quickly on the right hand, but I, I never stuck with it long enough to be able to, to, to do both. So, uh, but yeah, the, the, the interesting that you sort of um, felt this, you know, you felt compelled to sports and part of the connection it gave you to other people. And I'm, uh, when did the, when did the stuttering stop or what did you find as the, as the, the tool that could get you away from that? Well, at first I would, in fact, it's funny. I've had long discussions with George Springer about this. We bonded over this. Cause if you ever heard George Springer talk, he stutters terribly and yeah. you would get so where you would use different, there's certain words you wouldn't use. Cause you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get them. And I just kind of grew out. I just kind of, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the nuns were right. I just kind of grew out of it. It was weird. It was hmm. weird. To know, and they were right. In my case, they were correct. Right. I imagine you'd be uh, pretty shocked if someone told the young you that you were on television trying to spit things out in a very short amount yeah. of time with, you know, the potential for a mute and points being removed from your score if you didn't get it out right. But it's funny, like, so I've bonded. I spent a lot of time talking with George Springer about it. I talked with Ron Harper. That's it. I mean, yeah. That's being old school. And I thought, no, they had, I mean, that's my that's my oh, wheelhouse. That's right. That's right. Old. Come on. You know, I know that one. And he, uh, <laughs> I used to say he's the most courageous guy. He was he was a nut. But he's the most courageous guy I've ever met in the Because He was like, for some of those years with the Lakers, when Shaq and Kobe wouldn't show up, he'd be the spokesman. And he would be out mm -hmm. there and he, would, he didn't care if it took him 10 minutes to get out two words. He would get out those two words. And they were great. He was a great quote. He's the greatest stutterer quote ever. And uh, most stutterers <laughs> are good quotes because they know the words are so precious. But anyway, so I bonded yeah, with him. Absolutely. So anyway, fortunately, it was not a... Uh, 
physical thing. It was an emotional thing, probably. It's some for some reason. I'm not sure what, because again, the nuns were not psychologists. But but <laughs> um, but I just stopped. I just slowed down and I stopped. And I still have trouble today sometimes with stuff. Yeah. So you end up um, at Baylor, but just for a year. What was your experience like at Baylor? Why did you choose to go there? Yeah, I went to Baylor because they gave me they're the only place that gave me. Uh, we had no money. And they gave me a journalism scholarship because by then I was writing for the paper and the editor and won some awards and things like that. So I get a journalism scholarship. So I go down there and I remember reading a book by Red Smith about being a sports writer. And Red Smith said, the best training once you get to college is to join a sports team, to learn about the team. The best training for sports. And of course, they would never say that today. You want to be separate from the team and objective and everything like that. But back then it was like, become part of a team. So I went to Baylor on a journalism scholarship and I became the manager of the basketball team. I was the, the, the guy that washed the jocks and washed the towels <laughs> and hung out. So I was a manager of the basketball team. I was, I was like the third, you know how they, they, these teams have several managers. They're all, right. I was like the lowest on the list, but then the head manager quit right at the start of the season. So they made me like, they gave me some scholarship money to be manager. So I it, I was rolling in the dough, <laughs> but I completely, so I hung out with the basketball team. I moved into the basketball dorm, Billy Carlisle, Larry Spicer, they were, they were, Jim Haller was the coach, Carol Dawson was the coach. It was a terrible Baylor team, but I was the manager and traveled with them, everything like that. And I completely ignored my studies. <laughs> I was a I was a cool kid. For once, I was a cool kid, right? Because yeah. being, being part of the basketball team, it's very almost the, famous. It sound you sound like uh, the kid yes, from Almost yes, Famous, right? Yes. Cameron Crowe getting embedded with the rock band and sort yes, of that's exactly uh, that's exactly a, right. A wayward adventure. <laughs> yeah, so I was totally out of place in this athletic dorm, but I stayed there and and I screwed up and I and so I didn't do well in my studies, so I lost my scholarship, and my parents didn't have any money, so I had to come home. <laughs> Oh man. Okay. So, so yeah. a humbling experience for you or were you, were you? No, like, I, no, I didn't. Can, no, it? I didn't. I was fine. You know, it was like, really, I, I, I guess because I would, was lucky to go to Baylor in the first place. It was a dream to even get to go to out of state to college. It was a dream to even go to college. We didn't, you know, I'm the first, I am the first of my family to graduate from college. My dad didn't graduate from high wow. school. Wow. So I was like thrilled to even go there. So it was like, all right, that's that's probably my my my, my one big shot. It was fine. It was fun. But so then there wasn't guilt because that, that no. could go one of two ways. It could either be, well, that was probably too big of a dream anyway, or it could be, holy shit, I just f***ed up this thing that like it was, no, was a it really was, big deal for me to get. It's and funny I ruined because it. because my parents, it comes from your parents, and they were they never pushed college or anything like that. They didn't really push it. They didn't even know to, they didn't know to push it. You know what I mean? You right. know, you see today kids and with my kids, I took them on million college tours and went to a million different places. They went to all great schools. My parents were of a different generation. So there was no expectation. So there was no, it was literally no shame in Billy coming home. Billy, Billy's coming home. All right. That's fine. That's, that's where he belongs. And did they think that was it? You were just uh, yeah, not yeah, yeah. School, I, you yeah. would get into life I, and work, and, and no, whatever. I was going to go to school somewhere. So I came home, and my my dad had taken a job at another printing plant in Southern Illinois. This printing plant was closing, so he went to Southern Illinois. So my parents lived in Southern Illinois. They moved there after I graduated from high school. So I came back to Southern Illinois, 
And I literally got into a car and just drove until I found a college. And, and, and I ended up, ended up in Edwardsville, Illinois. That's that journalistic research. And, and you up, know, you really, no, we didn't do that back then. You used your skills to. <laughs> and I drove and, and we ended up in Edwardsville, Illinois, at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Which is different than SIU. I did not yes. know there was more than one SIU. Yes, it's, a, it's an extension. You're not a it's Saluki. An no, no, I'm not a Saluki. I'm a Cougar. It's an extension okay. of an obscure school. So it's a, so that's it was it was a, it was a commuter school for farm kids. But okay. but it was three hundred bucks a month a, a semester. I mean, it was cheap. I could I could afford it because I worked in my dad's factory in the summer. I could pay for it. I lived in a I moved in. It had no dorms. I moved into a church basement in Roxana, Illinois, next to an oil refinery. And I lived in a church basement. It's all too glamorous, Bill. It's, it's, that's, that's where I came from. <laughs> so I, I, I get it. My first day there, my first when I first moved into there, I go to the journalism department. And I go into the older, they, they, have, they have one journalism professor, or two, two, two journalism professors. And they, they had a pretty, this was a pretty good practical journalism department. They, they didn't really teach theory they you work for the school paper for the journalism publications for the magazines that they put out there was a pretty good practical education so anyway i went into the journalism department i went to the the old curmudgeonly journalism professor and said the director and said i'm bill plaschke and i'm gonna be the best sports writer to ever come out of this the best <laughs> no the best writer period to ever come out of this place you'll see and the guy said get out of here and he threw me out <laughs> but i was cocked that's really all i had was my writing. I wrote at Baylor. That's all I had was my writing. I didn't have any money. I had no connections. I had no, I couldn't speak that well. All I had was my writing. So I really banked on that. So I said, yeah, I'm going to be the best writer you've ever had come out of here. So that started my career there. And I spent three, three great years at it in, in, in uh, Edwardsville. And what was the transition like to go from, you know, BMOC with the basketball team at Baylor to this very small school? It was really startling. It was, I mean, I lived again, we did like, had like eight people living in this basement. The, 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 the fumes <laughs> were terrible, but it was, it was good for me because it, it brought me really, it did bring me back to earth. It, it said, my professor's like, you're only as good as your last story. You have to report, report, report. You know, you have to do the legwork. You can't just write these fancy frilly stories and think that that's enough. You have to do the, you have to get in the, in the trenches and that's what they taught you. Yeah. Well, you probably, you know, felt at home cause you were near nuns again, if you lived in a church. And I think that seems yeah, to me, it, it was not, it was not a Catholic church. It was a, it was a, it was an evangelical church. It would have followed the storyline better. <laughs> yeah. The proximity to nuns was really the through line I had. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, so you're the sports editor for the paper at SIU Edwardsville. Do you remember any story, like a single story from your time there that you're either most proud of or you look back and you say, wow, I really I bungled that. I'm glad that came earlier or I really learned. Was there, is there one that kind of stands out? Oh, yeah. Well, there was a lot of them because 
I was a sports center of a college that had no sports. <laughs> we we had soccer. That was it. So soccer's people, a sport, Bill. I mean, people, you, I know, I know, I know. But we had we had, we had, say, we had, it had one sport. <laughs> it had one one big. We had the basketball team played the high school gym. Um, we had and people today today they say, why do you always do stories on these unknown people? These and these, you know. Uh, tear-jerking, heart-tugging stories about people in the shadows because that's what I grew up writing about because that's what I – I'd write about the, the javelin thrower, the guy who threw javelin at the, on, the, on, the, the, on the, uh, the playing field we had. It was like a big expanse of grass, but pasture. This immigrant threw javelin every day trying to relive his past from the Ukraine. I wrote about him. Mm. But the story I think about most is the one I did about a woman, but it wasn't a sports story, but it would really – a woman in Roxana, she had the first baby of the new year. She was a, she was a, I think she was a cheerleader. That's what I wrote about her. She had the first baby of the new year and the first at, at the local hospital, but they wouldn't give her the 5000 or the $500 reward because she wasn't married. Oh. Yeah. It was like a, a shitty rule. Yeah. Terrible rules. So I wrote about that and I really felt good about the side, you know, you know, supporting her and doing all that. But, yeah. So those, those are the kind of stories I wrote about. I'd write about the, uh, you know, the last guy on the, uh, on the rugby team we had, or the, the cross country runner who finished last, but kept, kept him in the race and that sort of yeah. thing. So those, so that's cool. So you were looking for those, uh, which is kind of what you have to do if you're not somewhere with a, a big program. Exactly. I never, you- I was, I was competing. As I learned later, I was competing for jobs against writers from colleges, Missouri and Northwestern and Kansas, who covered Rose Bowls and right, right. Wars, and I never got out of the high school bats. But all you know, years. there's there's a really interesting thing that I've found. Um, if you've ever had any exercise, either in school or outside of it, where there's extreme limitations put on whatever the 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 you know the experiment or the assignment is, um, the creativity often comes from having to look at things completely differently because of the limitations, whether that's something silly or something legitimate, but it probably forced you to be a much better writer because what you wrote about was not inherently interesting. You had to find what was interesting and make other people interested in it, which is a lot more difficult than getting people to read a story about the Rose Bowl, that they're going to read whether you've written it well or not. That's a great point, Sarah. That's a really, really good point. That kind of defines my career is that I had to learn to talk to people who were strangers, who were shadows, who nobody ever talked to. And that's different than doing an interview with a star quarterback of the football team with six reporters around you. I never had any reporters around me for any interviews I did. I had to dig these right. people up. I had to track down. And you can't use their information no, and their quotes no, and the stories no, they've no. already done. It has to come it's all, all from you. all came from me. I mean, all of it. So yeah. that's kind of how I based my whole career is everything I've done that I've been proud of since then has been those kind of stories. I mean, I do the, you know, you know, I do the, I wrote today, the Rams should start John Wolford instead of Jared Goff. But uh, <laughs> I'm down for yeah, it. I, they did a, they did a great thing for my Chicago bears, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> helping them out by beating the Cardinals. Yeah. But anyway, but, it, but, but yeah, you're exactly, you're exactly right. And that's what defines me as a writer is those limitations, working with those limitations. That's exactly, exactly what happened. So you're, like you said, you're, you're, you didn't know it at the time, but you're sort of competing with people at other universities and up and coming writers for jobs. So you get out of uh, SIU Edwardsville and tell me about your first couple jobs, Fort Lauderdale, Seattle. How did you get those and what were you doing? Well, I, when I was a junior in college, I applied for 50 internships 
nobody ever got internships out of Edwardsville. It was uh, people would work for their families and work at the factories in the summer. I applied for 50 internships with all these great clips of javelin throwers and <laughs> unwed mothers. And I got one response. I got one response, 50. I was turned down from Hawaii to Maine. I just, because I just went and got the, this big, it's called Editor and Publisher. It's a yearbook. And I went and got newspaper addresses from everybody in the country and sent it all out. One response, Muskegon, Michigan. <laughs> so I went up to Muskegon, Michigan that one summer and wrote about drag racers and fishermen and bass fishermen and everything like that. And so I leave, I left there, came back to school for my senior year. So now I've got one big internship under my belt, the Muskegon <laughs> Chronicle, this tiny little paper in Western Michigan. So I come back to my senior year and I have one semester left. So I apply for 50 more internships, 50. And I do not say that I do not, I'm not exaggerating 50 <laughs> letters. I got, no responses. I got none. <laughs> and it's fine. It's fine. Journal doesn't get you where it used to. No, no. Vegan's Vegan's Chronicle. 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 <laughs> so I got no responses. So I'm sitting there. It's February. I'll never forget this. And I, uh, I'm going to have to go back to work in my dad's factory. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do. I couldn't get an internship. If you can't get an internship, you can't get a job. So then I come coming home. Where I'm, I'm living. They, they built on-campus apartments by then, so I'm coming home to my, my apartment. It's a snow, and I get out, and my two roommates see me, and they run out to the balcony, and they're in their boxer shorts, and it's snowing. <laughs> but they're all they were druggies, so there was smoke coming everywhere, and they said, "Bill, Bill, somebody called, somebody called." I'll never forget this. Somebody called. I said, "What? Somebody called. Some newspaper called." I'm like, "What? What? Who?" And they're like. Shit, we forget. We don't know. So I run inside. So I run inside with my books through the snow, get up to the apartment. I said, "What? where is it? He said, well, we, we wrote it down somewhere on the back of a Cocoa Puffs box. They wrote down the name of a woman who called from the St. Petersburg Times. That was a, and that's the number one journalistic intern place in the country at the time. It mm -hmm. really was like a factory. They ran classes in the summer. It was a tremendous place. And they called. It's the one place they called. It was the best place that I applied to. So hmm. immediately she said, can you come work for us this summer? I said, as long as you, as long as you don't burn, you can burn me with cigarettes and I'll be there. I, 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 don't, I don't care. <laughs> so I skipped. So excited to go down there. I skipped my graduation. My graduation, I was going to walk early. I was going to walk a semester early. I skipped it, went down there and worked that summer in St. Pete. Doing again the same thing though. I found out there was another intern from Indiana University, so I was his his caddy. You know, I was the low guy on the totem pole, and I got the soft the senior citizen softball and senior citizen tennis. And but I wrote the hell out of those stories. At least I thought I did, and I finished. So the school was so the program was so good. My journalism professor flew down there to see me, and when I remember meeting him in the London lunchroom at St. Pete, and he said, "This place is great." I'll give you 16 credits. You graduated. You're done. Boom. So that, that was, awesome. that's SIU Evansville for you. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's tremendous. Yeah. So I, um, so, okay. So, so I'm finishing my internship and I'm trying to get a job and I can't get a job. I still can't get a damn job. I'm applying <laughs> and applying and no responses. And they say, well, Bill, it's, it's, it's going to be August. It gets to be close to September. And I said, well, Bill, you, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I, I know what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to leave here. I'm going to come to work every day. You got to throw me out of here. 
And that's the advice I've given every intern wow. since it comes to the LA Times. I said, if you have no place to go, keep showing up for work. Make them physically throw you out of the building. So I kept showing up for work. So they, they didn't know what to do with me. So they, one of, one of my editors called an old friend in Fort Lauderdale who ran a, a bureau. There was an opening in a bureau in, in the Everglades for the Fort Lauderdale newspaper. So they, they hooked me up and they got me a job there just to get me out of the newsroom at St. Pete because I wouldn't go. I wouldn't leave because I had nowhere to go. So I went down there to St. Pete, <laughs> to, to Fort Lauderdale, to work in the, the West Bureau of the Fort Lauderdale News and Sun Sentinel and covering senior citizen tennis, shuffleboard, little league sports, high schools. I mean, I've covered more high school football. It's the hardest thing to cover because it, it, <laughs> it, it, it teaches you resilience. It teaches you cooperation. I mean, you have to work with the other writers on the sidelines. The number one question you ask in high school football is, what's your name, son? I've, I've grabbed kids by helmets yeah. and said, what's yeah. your, the kid who just recovered a fumble, what's your name? Because <laughs> there are no rosters or no the Anyway, yeah. So that's where I worked. I worked yeah. there, and then I got promoted to the main section to cover high schools, and then I started covering University of Miami. That was my first big time break. Schnell, Howard Schnellenberger, Jim Kelly, Bernie Kosar. So I covered Miami, but I wanted to. Florida wasn't that big of a place that then. It wasn't that hot, big of a hotbed. All they had was the Dolphins, so I wanted to get out. So I realized then. I needed to go back to writing the kind of stories that I like to write. So I went and found in the, out in the Everglades, there's a Native American school in the Everglades, an inner city coach in Miami, an inner city uh, athlete in Miami was coaching the basketball team. And I go out there and do a story on them. And they're passing around a shoe at practice. There's no ball. There's just a shoe. And they're shooting a shoe. And I said, what's up? He said, well, a member of the tribe died. And we have three days. We, can't, we have to mourn and we can't use any sports equipment. So we're playing with his shoe. So I thought to myself, well, that's wow. a story. That's an award-winning story. That's going to get me out of Fort Lauderdale. So I wrote that story. And uh, I ended up, and I applied for a bunch of places and ended up getting a job in Seattle covering the, covering the Mariners. So I go from the national championship in the middle of the season in 83, Hurricanes, to the last place, Seattle Mariners. <laughs> and how long were you in Seattle? I was in Seattle three and a half years. Okay, so a fair a fair amount of time there. Yes, before. yeah, I got to, I get there and the, the the other the beat writer I replace hands me a key. What's the key for? It says this is for the kingdom. <laughs> and there's the, 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 the kingdom. And there's actually back when they had the kingdom, they had a key to get in there. And it no was way. dark, and they took yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was dark. They took batting practice. The Mariners were like a terrible team, and that's funny that they, they had an actual key. The actual key um, to get in the building. We'll get right back to the interview, but first. I'd like a word. My favorite word is tremendous. I use it all the time for everything because I think life is just itself is tremendous. And I try to see the tremendous in everything. And uh, I use it for fast food. French fries are tremendous. The finest restaurant in New York is tremendous. A sunset is tremendous. Uh, the smoggy day is tremendous. So, yes, uh, tremendous is a favorite word. Tremendous. Uh, you actually do use that word quite a bit on Around the Horn. Now that you mention it, I do I do think of the fact that you use it often. It's a good one. It has a lot more gravitas than great or terrific. It feels very weighty. 
tremendous. Um, but interestingly, I looked it up and it it did not connote positivity the way that most of us use it now. When it first came out and appeared in the 1630s, it actually came from the Latin tremendous without an O, fearful, to be dreaded, terrible, literally to be trembled at, tremendous. Uh, it was awful. It was dreadful. It was terrible. And it wasn't until the early 1800s that people started to use those words um, kind of hyperbolically to mean extraordinarily great, immensely great, immensely positive. Um, so words that used to mean bad things, terrible, terrific, dreadful, awful, instead just started to add weight to positive uh, statements. I like you an awful lot. I'm terribly in love with you. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Tremendous. Used to mean to be trembled at. And now uh, such a positive word. It's a good one. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. The word of the week is circumlocutionist, one who consistently speaks in a roundabout way in order to avoid addressing a question directly. Uh, circumlocution, the root of this, from 1400s, from Latin circumlocutionum, a speaking around, or from circum, a roundabout, and then uh, locution is a speaking and to speak. So very, very old word. I got this one from a great Twitter follow that someone pointed me to, Susie underscore Dent. It's Susie with an IE. She writes about words and etymologies, and she shares new and interesting words on her account there all the time. This felt right, particularly in the last couple of weeks. I mean, this is this is something you deal with every day. You could tell your kids they're being uh, circumlocutionary about your question about whether they finish their homework, or perhaps at a larger level, you could accuse a government official or politician of being circumlocutionary in the way that they address meaningful questions about meaningful things happening in our world. It's a good word. It is a very good word. Now let's get back to the interview. So how do you get from covering the Mariners to the LA Times? Because it, it I, I knew you had been there a long time, but 1987 is when you started at the LA Times. So almost my entire life you have been <laughs> oh, there. No, I don't mean to age you. That's uh, okay. There, there, someone, there, there's plenty of people who's starting in, in to feel LA. old myself. Uh, I like to be able people. to say that. There's plenty of <laughs> people in, in Los Angeles who say the same thing about it. They grew up reading me. And I, I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. So how do you get from Seattle to LA? Well, I, I was ready to get out of Seattle. It was a smaller, you know, it was a small market and I wanted something bigger and the LA times called, but the the thing was once again, I never went through the front door of any place I worked. They said, we got an opening, the LA Times, covering the San Diego Padres. I said, wait a minute, <laughs> the San Diego Padres? This is the LA Times. What, what the hell is that? I said, well, we have a bureau in San Diego. We publish a newspaper in San Diego. So I said, so it's not really the LA Times. They said, yes, it is. It's the LA Times, San Diego. We serve like <laughs> 50,000. Kind of like SIU Edwardsville. Yes, exactly. <laughs> kind of like, like, exactly like, exactly like the Fort Lauderdale News and Sunset No West Bureau. Exactly yeah. like that. So I get there and I call the sports center of the LA Times, of the real LA Times, and I can't give them to return my calls. <laughs> I, I, I work here. <laughs> so I covered the, the Padres, which was a terrible team, another terrible team. I covered baseball. I just knew I wanted to write and reach as many people as I could reach. And I knew that the way to get ahead to move up the ladder was to cover the toughest sport, and that was baseball. So I covered the San Diego Padres with Larry Bow and Tony Gwynn was one of my best friends in the world, God rest his soul. He took care of me. So I covered the Padres for a year and a half, and then they had a beat, they had an opening on the Dodger beat downtown LA, the biggest beat the paper at the time. It's 88. 
After the 88 season, they won a world championship. Kirk Gibson, Oral Hershiser, Tommy Lasorda. It was like covering the White House. Well, I mm. was, they asked one writer if he wanted to do it. He said no. They asked another one. He said no. They asked a third one. I was the fourth choice <laughs> because I was so, because I was so far away in such a distant bureau. So I was their fourth choice and they asked me, and I said, hell yes, I'll do it. I'll do it in a heartbeat. Are you kidding me? Cause that's the way, you know, that's the way to get, to get noticed. Yeah. So I started doing the Dodgers and, and uh, I covered them at the end of the world series in 88 and it started in 89 covering the Dodgers yeah. as a, as a beat. And still, still, still covering them. Although you became a columnist uh, a couple years later, what was the biggest difference for you? And why did you want to start, start doing column work instead of beat work? Yeah, it's because I, I wanted to, after I did the beat for a while, and then I, then I got moved on to do NFL, national NFL stuff, I wanted to reach as many people as I could. And I'll never forget having a conversation with, with my little brother. And he's like, well, why did you get into writing? Why did you? I said, because I don't know what I want to do now. I'm covering the NFL, and I don't know what to do. And I never dreamed of being a columnist. I never even thought of it. I never, I mean, SIU Edwardsville to be a columnist mm-hmm. somewhere, I never even dreamed of that. And he said, why'd you get into writing? And I said, I got into writing because I wanted, because I couldn't talk, because I wanted to, I wanted to connect with people. I wanted to reach, I wanted to make them laugh and cry and think and be mad and be happy. I wanted to affect my landscape in any way I could. And the only way I could do it was writing. I said, so that's all. And I want to write whatever stories can affect people and make them move them and change the world a little bit, just a little bit, or make them change their lives for two minutes and one morning over the breakfast table or change the way they think of things. I just, that was the only way I could do it. The only way I could have an impact on my world. And he said, well, what job was that to do that? He said, columnist. And I said, well, then I'm going to try to be a columnist. <laughs> so I, so I go into to the sports editor. I want to be a columnist. There's no way you're ever going to be a columnist. <laughs> so we got, you're too far in lines. The LA times, there's too many people ahead of you. Jim Murray. Pulitzer Prize winner, Mike Downey, Scott Osler. It's a pantheon, pantheon of greats were columnists. So I was turned down by my, my bid to be a columnist. So I went out, and as, as usual, I thought, we're going to find somebody to write about. and to write a story that's going to shake them and make them look at me. So at the time, covering the NFL, the NFL outlaw, this is when the NFL banned bandanas from the players because of gang concerns. So players were not allowed to wear colored bandanas on NFL teams. So I called um, Garfield High School coach in Gar- Garfield, which is the, the inner city East LA high school that were stand and deliver was filmed. Jaime Escalante taught there. I called the coach and said, is this a, an issue for your kids? Are they, are they affected by the gang, seeing gang signs and gang bandanas? And he goes, come down here and spend a week with me and I'll show you. So I did. So on my own time, not my beat, not my job, not my, my I didn't make any money doing it. On my own time, I spent a week with the Garfield High football team, lived with them, slept there, got up and saw, you know, they saw how they were afraid. Certain days of practice, they had to practice in one end zone because the gangs were in the other end zone. Players had to leave during games because they had to do gang work. It was unbelievable the the, the struggles this this young team had, this this inner city team had. There's been many stories done about this since, and there's been books written about this kind of stuff, you know that. But back then, it was still kind of new and fresh. And I wrote it, and they ran it on the front page of the paper, and it got a bunch of a bunch of uh, responses, and I got my column, <laughs> and that and that's how that's how that worked. 
Bill, you're just teaching journalism lessons here. This whole podcast is just lessons in uh, perseverance and uh, and doing the it's work. It's old fashioned. Um, it's old fashioned. I don't know if but, anybody. I mean, it's it is it's old fashioned, but at the same time, what's fascinating is to start working there in the '80s and to still be working there. And for for you, you obviously are somebody more so than most anyone else who understands how different the job is now. And I, I wonder how much it has affected your writing, if at all. Because I know, you know, you hear Greg Cody on on the Levitard show talking about how he needs the clicks, right? And and how so much of his that job God, has ability. Sarah, you're so right. You are so right. But on. like, you know, if, if, if we can make fun of that, but if that's really how you're hanging on to a job, and those jobs are are going away at newspapers, you can't blame people. But then it also sometimes results in either headlines or stories that aren't entirely accurate or fair, or maybe are just salacious to the point of clinging to to truth, but. Um, and that's frustrating too for readers or for people digesting it. If it becomes about how do I draw your attention versus how do I do good work? How have you digested that, uh, you know, over your time there? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's gotten more so than ever. You never hear, I never hear anymore. And I've won, and I'll second brag on myself mm -hmm. one quick. I've won eight sports columnist of the year awards, national sports columnist of the year, eight times. And I never hear a good story from someone, from any of the people at, in my paper these days it's always that story did well that story mm -hmm. clicked well that story carried well so but i've told myself you know what this what got me here was doing the human interest people stories people in the shadows bringing people to life trying to connect with the readers in ways that can touch their heart and their mind and their soul and all that so i keep doing those stories i'll throw in the wolf richard start instead of jared goff and I'll throw in the, uh, you know, the LeBron's the greatest player ever, better than Michael Jordan. I'll throw in those columns. But I try to still rely on doing the, the Rams during the pandemic, during this pandemic. One of the victims of COVID was a Rams fan. That was his whole claim to fame was he was a Rams fan, 70-year-old, 79-year-old Rams fan. He died in his Rams jersey. And I'm saying that we were losing not only sports world is losing – figures it's losing fans it's losing its mm. its backbone so those kind of stories i still try to do those those stories and i'm like that's going to be my bread and butter i'm not gonna i know nobody's ever going to say great story anymore probably they're going to say how well did it do and those stories don't do as, as you know sarah those stories don't do as well I, I ripped the hell out of jared golf last week and that story did much better than, than the one that takes all the time and thought it, it, and yes, work and yes, research. Yeah, yes, it's incredibly yes. frustrating. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Well, 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 but, well. Of course, you found that sweet spot with your story on the uh, on McCullough. I mean, you found that sweet yeah. spot with that story, Dylan McCullough. Well, yeah. that story, like, uh, you know, it was basically on me not to screw it up because it was such an incredible story. Yeah, but those are few. Um, but the, but, the, so, but, but yeah. those but those sweet spots are still out there. You know, you have this old school newspaper quality because you've been there for so long, but you also have the new school newspaper quality, which is I got into writing so I wouldn't have to talk. And now I'm on TV talking, which is which is, of course, the around the horn part, which is something that, you know, I I was too young to see that happen. I've heard people reminisce about the idea of what a novelty it was to take someone who was a newspaper person and put them on TV. Oh, Sarah, it was and a, that often was a, ESPN, that was a, was a, it was a Walsh thing, right? That he, he said, I don't care as much about whether they've got the look. I, I want to see if it'll work on TV. And that sort of opened the door for a lot of newspaper folks. 
So you're saying I don't have a look for TV, Sarah? Is that what you're saying? Uh, it had nothing to do with you. It had to do with those early people that apparently well, I John don't. Walsh I don't. I, thought, I tell uh, people. You know. I tell people. People come to me and want broad. They, they people literally come to me and say, "How can I get into broadcasting?" I say, "Look at me. Do you think I know how to get into broadcasting?" <laughs> I say, "No, Figured that's I, I'm not. I'm not the thing." Yeah, that's what. So when the show started, and and I don't know if if you recall this or if you're around for this. Um, but it was, it was shunned. It was for the, they took the whole idea was to take sports writers from across the country and have them duel and back their cities and all that stuff. And but for people who had been in the trenches and been in locker rooms or anything like that, and and so for the first time they heard us speak. They heard we came out of the locker rooms and out of the out of the dugouts and out of the south the sidelines and we spoke, and it was a disaster i mean people thought we're gas bags <laughs> we were called the parade of gas bags it was terrible so i didn't even go on it the show started in 2002 i didn't go on it they didn't well, they didn't ask me to go on it they, they finally came to me about six months later and said can you can you give it a shot and i was wary at first because it had been getting ripped by so many people and it, and this was after sports reporters but sports reporters had an air of sort of gravitas yes that, yes that yes made it feel different yes, than yeah, sort of because it was, go it was around the horn new york reporters sound effects right and, yeah, yeah. And, and they and they and nobody made fun of you on sports reporters nobody poked fun at you on sports reporters so this so this is a whole new genre and people it was ripped by and it was funny that all the highbrow writers in the country and the media writers and other sports writers ripped it. And I would never do it. They said, oh, I would never do that. It was terrible. It's embarrassment. So I tried it. And it was fun. And it was, and it was like, and it, <laughs> it, it is was fun. really fun. It's a lot of fun. And guess what? The, the, the mainstream media hated it. The public loved it. The kids loved it. The, the time, you know, it's five o'clock on the East Coast when fraternity houses were filling up and sorority houses were filling up and, and the kids are off school, and the the the, the, the demographics love the eighteen to thirty demographic loved loved it. Yeah, well, you get your water cooler talking points because everything's quick, and each person has a take that you can then say, "Oh, this is what I think too about this debate." And also, like you said, you're making fun of people, so uh, it sort of takes away that sort of "I'm taking myself seriously" bit that some people don't like about sports Whoa. journalists because you know they take their mutes and they make fun of each other, and it, it combines a whole bunch of knowledge with also that that playfulness, which makes it different than a lot of other shows. One of the reasons I survived so long on, I think is because I can laugh at myself. I laugh at, you see, you see <laughs> what I've been through in my life. So I laugh at myself, but it's, you can make, you can <laughs> insult me. But I think as this show has gone on, I think what's, I'd like to think what's, what's been one of the standards is as you've had all these brilliant young minds like yourself and others come on the show, they've kept Kalashaw and me and Woody around. And I yeah. think it's because mm -hmm. they like the difference and the disparity and they like that we're the ones still that, that have been in the locker rooms and all that, all these experience. So I think that's cool. I mean, I think, I think, yeah. I don't think they're having us around just because they, they like it because they're nice to us. I think that that's, that's a, it's a reason. And I think it's. Uh, no, it, it's different perspectives and, totally and different perspectives. Uh, whether that's based on age or experience or job or anything else, but it also sort of creates these interesting and fun dynamics of different people who, who create, or, or find chemistry in, in strange ways, even if that's me sort of needling Woody or vice versa. Um, oh, it's wonderful. And, and for you, you also don't take yourself too seriously. And because you, 
you have gotten a lot of awards and you're obviously very good at your job. So when you have a really terrible take, like the Cubs have never looked worse and it's over oh, yeah. and then they go on to beat the Dodgers <laughs> and win the World Series, then you can just be okay with the show uh, putting together a full highlight reel of you being wrong totally, uh, totally, because you're confident totally, enough you're exa- uh, to have you're exa- a terrible take and have me just, you know, you're exactly right. Sarah, I, don't, I don't mind getting beat my butt beat by you, Sarah. You're so smart and funny and uh, <laughs> no, you are. You are. It's 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 fun. It's and it's fun. That's it's, nice, it's, Phil. It's, you're like really one of the ones that really make the show go. But no, I just think it's funny, and I That's don't mind. Nice. I lead with my heart, and so when it comes to making predictions, if I, and I think sports fans are like that. People say, "Oh, you're yeah. you're a waffler." No, one day the Dodgers look great, the next day they suck. One day the Rams look great, the next day they stink. <laughs> That's how one day the Rams are going to win a Super Bowl. The next day they're going to lose the first round. That's how fans think. That's how right. I, that's how that's how it I is. think. So, um, it is. but it, but it's it's a blast. So, I want to ask you because uh, we we had a weird year on Around the Horn where we did six months or something of shows at home um, before we got back into the studios and we're trying to do the studio work safely. It still feels different, but more like the same. But during that stretch in the middle. We were all trying to figure out, and that was a funny part too, is the sort of difference between me setting up an at-home camera and lighting versus Woody or or Kalishaw, who I think had at least a child. No, it was been me. My, TV my, stuff my, that helped. Well, that was that me. Was my you? daughter yeah. was home from you. Know, she's a production coordinator at, on for Saturday That's Night Live. Right. She was, she was, That's she right. Was, we talked about this because I'm eventually going to wait till she gets high enough to get me into Saturday Night Live. Yeah, <laughs> she was. She was. She was home for the summer. And I, I could not have done it without her. I mean, I could not have yeah. figured out anything without her. So that she saved yeah. me. It was, it was just great to be behind the scenes as Tony's trying to explain to Woody, like the simplest things of how to like tip his camera forward or anything like that. Uh, but this was all, of course, because of the pandemic. And um, you wrote a story about your own experience with it, which I found of, of all the things I've read, and I've read a lot about people's uh, personal experiences, I found yours to be the most sort of um, moving and and stirring because of you talking about the dread. And it's something that I hadn't thought of much, this idea that in the moment, if you have 102 fever or the chills, or you feel absolutely terrible, unless you need a respirator, there's nothing they can do. So you just sit at home and you know your family can't come see you and you know you can't go to the hospital. So then you just sort of ask yourself, you know, am I going to die? What, you know, what's, what's going on now? And I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about sort of um, your experience for people who didn't read the story. Yeah, that was some story. I didn't really want to write it because it was so personal and exposed so much of me. And I don't, I don't use the word I in my columns hardly at all. I don't think it's about, <clears throat> columns not about me. It's about all of us and the readers and all of LA. But I had been ripping before that, I've been ripping teams for playing, for coming back during COVID. So I figured I need to, have, to be full disclosure that I got it. And I got it, um, covered the, I wrote the uh, the Clippers-Lakers first game back in the bubble, regular season game. I wrote the column on it. I finished the column and I started shaking and I couldn't stop shaking. So I literally shook my way from my desk into, into my bed. And the next day, the fever popped, and it got higher and higher, and 102, and 102, and 101. And then I went and got tested, and they said, you, you've got it. And the minute they said, you got it, it was like I was scared out of my mind. I was scared to death. And, I, and that's, that's kind of what I wrote about was the fear I'd sweat through. It's not just sweating through five shirts a night, or it's not just loss of taste and smell. And, and, and I didn't, I was, I'm one of the lucky ones. I didn't go to the hospital. But 
what got me was the fear that I called my doctor and said, well, well, what do I do if I get 103? He says, nothing. What, 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 when do I want to go to the hospital? And you can't breathe. Can, can I, what, what medicine can I take? We don't have any. Hmm. It was the fear. And I think that's what people that I never read about before uh, when I wrote it was that people live with what's worse, as bad as the symptoms is the fear that, and the knowledge that they can't fix it. They can't do anything about it. And if you go bad, if you go south, you're done. Mm. And that's it. And there's and, and it's still it's still going on. It's still raging here in LA. Our hospitals are full, our ICUs are full. And, you know, it's so that's so that's what I wrote about is that just the fear, the nightly fear of is this cough gonna turn into a a breathing problem. Right. Well, and the mental side of it too, that you talked about the weird things like you'd be in the middle of a phone call and just forget what call you were on or start crying. Um, and, and so oh, yeah, much of that, how do you separate time. anxiety of fear that you have it with potential neurological effects of a virus? Like all of those things that sort of mix together. Oh, I still, this Christmas, I had two of my three children came home. I, my son didn't want to, was, I didn't want him to, t- to take the risk. He'd only be here for a couple of days and he lives in Missouri. So, um, but just sitting around with my kids, I started crying and you wonder if that's some of the impact in the, I talked to, you know, doctors and scientists about it out here and then what, what all of us who've had it, what's the long haul, what's Mm -hmm. the ramifications, but no, I would, or I'd fall asleep in my chair and be, be chased by old women with giant heads. It was Mm -hmm. like you had, you had, you know, you had all these dreams and these hallucinations and all that but it was so it was all that mixed in together and it just again the bottom line is i think that's what people who are so cavalier about this oh i'm so young i'll get it and it's no big deal i'll get over it but you might not yeah and if you get it if you, if you get it there is no cure so imagine being told something you have that's no cure for it Right. And there's no understanding of it. I think that's one of the things that I've been trying to say since I first read about those long hauler symptoms. And when I first read about that one city that got hit the hardest in Italy, that was one of the first places where they had the longest leash on being able to go back and revisit it. You know, we've had such a short amount of time to understand coronavirus. So this one, they said it's been, I think at the time it was three months since they got hit hard. And this percentage of people were still feeling some sort of effect, you know, after presumably they don't quote unquote have it anymore. And so there's more and more and more of those stories now because it's been around for a lot longer. But I think that's a fear too, that people are not taking seriously is, you know, do you really want to not be able to smell right for the rest of your life? Or do you really want to have trouble going up, walking up the stairs or any number of things? Um, Do you feel pretty much a hundred percent other than the occasional moment, which I think the other thing that's hard is we've all been in a pandemic for a year. So uh, moments where you're like, am I just depressed because the world is broken or is this relating to being ill? Right. You know, it's hard. No, it's hard. I, I don't know. So the answer to that is, I don't know. I feel funny some mornings. I wonder if that's it. I move slower some days. I get fatigued easily some days. I wonder if that's it. Right. When, my, when my kids were like, Dad, you just need to go down to Staples Center and start – and you, you, you just need to get back in the right. locker room. It's rhythms and it's getting out into life and it's anxiety of, of fear and everything. Like there's no way to sort of separate the the, the reality yeah, that we're so all living hard. in and the way it disrupted our lives from what might be actual physical ennui. Well, that, that's, well, that's, you know? that's been really hard for me, for me and my job because I'm so used to people – and connection mm-hmm. with people and going out and, you know, I can't interview the last place cross country runner now because there's nothing to see and nothing to do. And they're, and they're, they're not even running cross country. 
You right. Know? So yeah. you can't, I can't do that right now. So that's, we're finding. I it, think, yeah. I've almost, Those of us- I've almost become like a TV critic. You watch a, watch <laughs> a Laker game, comment on LeBron, talk to him on Zoom. Although the kids mm-hmm. think it's great when LeBron appears in their living room talking to me on Zoom, you know, they, they, they think that the kids, the kids they think I'm cool. They get a little inside look at your yeah. job that they normally yeah. wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is interesting. Um, I have a very limited understanding, but the little reading I've done on sort of, you know, sort of the psychosomatic effects of things that we don't really truly understand, which includes just being around other people and the energy that you exchange and, and the visual cues and all the other things that sort of go away when you end up just being alone in your house and not engaging with people are pretty massive. I mean, if you look at any studies on solitary confinement, the biggest part is um, that we're meant to be in packs and groups and interact with each other. And what that does to our bodies and our brains when we don't have that is um, one of the biggest parts of all of this. Thankfully, I live with someone and I have three awesome therapy dogs that are constantly around. You but, have three um, dogs? I thought you just had one. You have oh, three. Oh, I have wow. three. Yeah. I got are, they all, are they all, because one's a pit bull, right? Two of them are probably pit bull mixes based on how they look. And the other one's probably an Australian cattle dog mix. They're all rescues, so we oh, don't actually know that's what awesome. they are. But Good yeah, they're basically uh, touching me at all times, which is a, a real help when things are not going well. It's, it's, it's a little harder to be sad when you have like the world's greatest dogs just lying on you at all times. Um, I'm glad you're feeling better though. And I, I, I think that was really good service that you did people by being honest and writing about it. Um, and you have a, a book that you've somehow managed to write during all of this, that's coming out next fall. That's going to be a movie that's super exciting. Um, and of course, you know, how do you feel about your future at the LA Times? Are you just are you just hoping that somehow there's a return to understanding the importance of true journalism and 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 reported facts, or are you concerned that we continue to go down the path where newspapers are are suffering? I think we're going to be okay. I think there's still the big papers: the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal. I think there's still emphasis. Hopefully, Chicago Tribune. <laughs> yeah, I worry about Chicago Tribune a lot, yeah. um, but they but there's emphasis on story. There's still emphasis on storytelling. There's still emphasis on connection, on being part of the community. So I think we're, we're going to be fine. We're lucky. Patrick Soon Shong is, is a brilliant, uh, billionaire doctor who owns us, and he understands that this is almost like a nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the number of papers and magazines that I subscribe to that I do not have time to read all of. One of my New Year's resolutions is actually building in an hour a couple times a week where I have to try to go through the Atlantic and the LA Times and the Chicago Tribune and the Washington Post and the New York Times and all the things I subscribe to and actually try to read more of them instead of just viewing it as a donation to subscribe to all of them, which is kind of how I see it now where I do read them, but not nearly as much as I would like if I had more time. I know. That's really cool you do that. Thank you for doing that because that's so important. Yeah. But but that's what we... uh, So I think... I think our future. I think I'm really lucky. I'm really. I've been lucky. I've been lucky about your my story. I've been lucky my whole damn life. Yeah. Well, I mean, having that many decades at a paper is is not a normal thing. So you're you're obviously and and winning you know AP Sports Writer of the Year eight times is also not, not common. So yeah, clearly, yeah. But I'm lucky. I'm really keep. lucky. So they so they. I think they still value what I do, but they still there's still you know I just have to overcome the pressures of doing the hot takes. I don't want to be, yeah. oh, God, I don't want to be a hot take artist ever. <laughs> don't worry. I'll keep you in line. I'll let you know when your, <laughs> when your takes get too hot. Well, like earlier is- when you said LeBron is better than Jordan. Yeah. Flaming hot. <laughs> well, I actually backed that there's up. No, there's no place in this world for that. I backed um, that up a little bit. Hey, 
before we let you go, you uh, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the new Spanish Inquisition. Number one, your current career is canceled. What job do you do instead? I'm a deacon for the Catholic Church. Really? Yeah. Are you super religious? Uh, not. I, I'm a. I'm a. I'm a pretty serious Catholic, and I've always wanted to okay. be. That's because what, what else? What else am I going to do, Sarah? I got nothing. I, don't know. I, I got. Don't know. I got nothing else. I got. I got. Okay. I got writing. Right. I got writing and TV. Yeah, I got you found nothing it. else. <laughs> uh, number two. What's the most scared you've ever been? This summer, laying in bed, my fifth T-shirt of the night, mm. changing T-shirts five times. 102 fever alone in my house. Nobody can be near me. I don't know what to do. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that makes sense. Uh, number three, you can be the best in the world at something for one day. What is it? Oh, that's a great question. I'd say it's <laughs> crazy. The best boyfriend. <laughs> I, I want to be, uh, I've got a partner and I want to be really good to her and I want to be, the best, yes. So the best boyfriend in the world if for one day, that would be that would be tremendous. That would make that her is happy. really that sweet, would, Bill. That made me happy. That is a very sweet answer. Uh, number four, what current celebrity, whether that's you know movies, TV, music, politics, would you most like to be your best friend? Well, I'm we're friends already, but I really like Kevin Costner. I think okay. he's just cool, and I think he's just, and I think he gets overlooked by a lot of people now. I saw him. At a Laker game, one recent last year before the pandemic, and he was courtside, and he's looking, and I'm I'm up top, so I can't get down there. I'm not down there, so he's looking around, and nobody's recognizing him, and he's not on the big <laughs> screen. And this is Kevin. He's a really cool guy. He's a yeah. former baseball player and a really cool guy, and um, I'd like to spend more time with him. Yeah, our kids went to high school together, the same high school together. Oh, nice. So, so we, kind of, we kind of hung out. His daughter was my son's peer counselor. But I'd like to be better friends with him. Number five, what's your biggest, mostly meaningless pet peeve? Um, let me think about that. When I can't order what I want to order at a restaurant because they look down on it, I want I want to get the uh, the salmon with no sauce and no <laughs> broccoli. And only veg and only mashed potatoes, and they look at me funny. That drives me crazy. <laughs> it's like, you, why do you care what I eat? Why do you care yeah. what I eat? It's what I. It's like when I used to eat meat, and and there would be a limited menu, and so I'd say, okay, I guess I'll have the steak. I want it medium well. I want a side of barbecue sauce. <laughs> They'd be like, get out of here. Yeah, they're looking at fun. Well, there's, there's, there's places in LA where you have you can't have any substitutions. Yeah. No, I went I went somewhere once in Chicago, and I was like. I was like, no, I mean, no, you have, you have like five items on your menu. I respect the chef, but I'm not going to come back here, nor am I going to enjoy my meal. If you don't let me at least order it medium well, I don't That's want my it. cow still That's mooing. It. I mean, I'm a vegetarian now. I think the, the path was clear, but I never wanted my cow still mooing and they just wouldn't let me do it. And I was like, what's the point of having a restaurant? That's my pet peeve. No substitution. That's my pet peeve. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great one. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh my God! So many times. This the <laughs> last. Uh, I uh, my kids were sitting in front of the fire, 
I'll just take one most recent time, which is like two days ago. I could sit in front of the fire. I'm starting a fire in my fireplace and my, my pants fall down. <laughs> Do you need a belt? Yeah, I need a bigger, I need a better belt. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and my um, kids are like, they're like screaming. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Almighty, we can't unsee that. Oh, dear God. Go away. Oh, no. No, oh, no more great. fires. No more Christmas. <laughs> Uh, number seven, other than getting better belts, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, I'd like to get this goatee to be even on each side. <laughs> I have a goatee and I have heard from people from around the horn that re re viewers send in dating emails all the time. Your damn goatee is crooked. It's not <laughs> even. And I can't get it even. So I'm, I'm just, again, again, somebody says, well, how do you get into broadcasting? What are you asking me for? <laughs> what is the percentage of goatee emails to emails of that dog that looks like you? Oh, all the goat, the, the dog looked like me. I don't want to tell us it brings up, brings up to people. I love that. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> that dog really does look. Yeah, exactly it really does like look because it's the eyebrows. It's I the like, eyebrows. I do, I do have Most eyebrows. Most dogs don't have eyebrows like that. It's, it's remarkable. <laughs> um, <laughs> number eight, you could have any band. Alive or dead to play your next party? Who is it? Oh, Abba! Everybody knows I'm an Abba. I'm an Abba nut. I've when I go on the radio shows in L.A., they play. That's my intro music is Abba dancing. Nice. Queen. I have been the best present I've ever. What the best present I ever got? My buddy got me the Hollywood Bowl tickets to an Abba fake awesome. Abba, Abba cover band. Cover band. <laughs> and people, we were dancing and crying and singing. Oh, it's uh, and, 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 and they were fake Abba. So <laughs> it wasn't I, even the real Abba. It wasn't it was an Abba. Oh, I love Abba. Abba, the, the, the awesome. best. You got to see the movie Muriel's Wedding. Have you seen that movie? No, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it's, it. It's yet. it's an Abba movie, and it's I mean it's about it's based on Abba's songs. Of course, the yeah. Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia movies were tremendous. Oh, my I saw God. the first Mamma Mia. I didn't. Here see we go like again. Yeah. Well, see, seeing Pierce Brosnan sing is really awful. That was really unsettling. <laughs> uh, number nine. What would you consider your biggest failure? I guess that's a that's a great question. Um, probably that I didn't, I never, I, I guess it's going to sound really weird, but I never told Kobe how much I loved him. I never, you know, Kobe and I were pretty close and I never told him that. I never, I never told him how I felt about him. Mm. I thanked him and stuff, but I never because I'm thinking about that because it's the anniversary of his death is coming up on January 26th. And I never told him, you know, he, we would talk and stuff. And I just never, I never thanked him for letting me in his world. I just never did that. Did it make that's, you that's a, that's, tell other people or share that with other people after he passed? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, I wrote, I wrote every day. I wrote for five straight days after his death about all of our experiences together. But other people and, that uh, you still have in your life, did you find yourself wanting to reach out to them? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I say that to, to my friends now all the time. And it makes some people uncomfortable. You know, you finish, you know, hey, hey man, by the way, I love you. And I'm hmm. you know, glad you're feeling better. Or that. And I don't need him to say I love you back. Yeah. I've learned, I've learned that it's good just to say it. Just, some people need it. Some people, nobody, somebody, some people are afraid to say it if they're not going to get the return response. I'm okay with you. I'm saying, all right, man, cool. I'll see you later. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. Uh, number 10, hard, yeah. what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Kind, 
generous, nice. Well, no, 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 nice is not that. That's the same as kind, isn't it? Bill, you're an award-winning writer. If you go with kind, generous, and nice, we may have to know, take know, at least one of those it's, awards yes, away. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, here's here's the thing. I I tell people this. My goal in life is I don't want anybody at my funeral to say, "Boy, that guy was a dick." <laughs> not <laughs> a dick. That, There's your three words. Not a dick. That's it. Not a dick. That's that. You're the writer. You're the great one. You're the award. You. If, if I were at a cemetery and I walked by and I saw a tombstone and it said Bill Plaschke, not a dick, I would want to know you. I would want to have been a friend of yours in life. That's why you win the Peabody Award, Sarah. That's that's it right there. Bill Plaschke, not a dick. We also might have the title for the podcast, assuming we're allowed to use, um, you know, uh, symbols instead of letters. <laughs> Producer Dan is going to have to uh, run that one by the higher ups if we can go with uh, not a dick. Hey, Bill, this was really fun. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. You're, you're the best. That's what she said. So this every week is going to change. Sometimes it will be, that's what she read. And I'll, I'll tell you an article that I think you'd like to read. Sometimes it'll be, that's what you said. And it'll be uh, something that you guys commented about the podcast or something relating or, or maybe a guest. But today, this is, that's what they did. And this is a shout out to the absolutely lunatic, fanatic, in the best possible way, Buffalo Bills fans. Now, every fan base has its morons, so I won't get into detail about any of the things that other terrible Bills fans have done. I will just simply say, to that select group of the Bills mafia that has decided that when something good happens to them, they will pay it forward in the form of charitable giving to the opponent that lost or the quarterback that got hurt or the team that beat the team that they needed to lose to get in, uh, is awesome. This whole movement that they started I think a couple years ago was the first time they did it. Um, I know at the end of 2017, Andy Dalton and the Bengals helped the Bills qualify for the playoffs, so they donated to Andy Dalton's charity. Earlier this year, Josh Allen's grandmother passed away, quarterback for the Bills, and they donated a ton to the Children's Hospital, um, over a million dollars. I think there's actually going to be a wing or a floor named after Josh Allen's grandma as a result of that. But this time... After the Bills beat the Ravens to make it to the AFC Championship game, their first time making it that far since 93, they wanted to support Lamar Jackson, quarterback for the Ravens, the team they beat, left to enter concussion protocol. You know, a bummer of a finish for that team and for that man, for that quarterback. So they decided to support the Blessings in a Backpack Louisville chapter, uh, Louisville where Lamar Jackson went to college. And as of the taping of this, they're at over $250,000 for Blessings in a Backpack, which mobilizes communities and resources and gets food on the weekends for elementary school kids across America that might otherwise not have a meal. I just love it. Listen, sports fans can be complete and utter lunatics in the worst possible ways and lose all perspective. But when they come together for something like this and the way the Bills fans have sort of taken this on as part of their identity, that's what they did. And they did a great thing. I love it. You can always send me a tweet at Sarah Spain if you've got suggestions of a guest you'd like to hear, questions about the podcast, tell me how you hate it, tell me how you love it, tell me what I should add, take out. Um, and you can always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please give me a review. You can always ask me a dilemma to fix, all that stuff. Please reach out. Let me know what you like. Uh, I love to hear from you guys. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. That's what she said.